Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we aim to undermine the powerful interests in Washington and in the media that want to sustain and expand our military footprint overseas while supporting a dangerous national security state at home. We have the dubious honor of broadcasting this week just ahead of the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, an event that accelerated American empire and worked to violate our civil liberties to a longer extent than any other war in American history. So I thought it might be um, you know, helpful to use this time to talk about our own reflections about 9-11. We will be talking with Abby Hall and Christopher Coyne, uh, two authors who have written extensively on the war coming home uh, in the next segment. Uh, but in the meantime, Dan, you know, I, I have so many things going on in my head right now because you and I have been writing about 9-11 for years and we have been writing about the wars. We have been writing about, you know, media complicity in those wars, the, you know, the Washington establishment um, for as long as I can remember. You know, you and I were writing for American Conservative. My goodness, it's got to be at least 10 or 12, 15 years ago about this stuff. So there's just so much that we could focus on. I guess, you know, from, from my own standpoint, what, what bothers me the most about uh, what happened after 9-11 and the U.S. response to it are two things. One is the invasion of two countries, the occupation and forever wars that continued after that in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the drone wars in Somalia and Libya and Syria, but also, you know, the real uh, erosion of our civil liberties at home. And, you know, right after the war, you know, there were many security uh, provisions put into place because people were really scared about being hit again by terrorists. So there suddenly were magnetometers wherever you went, whether it be at a museum, you know, in Washington, D.C. or at the airports, there was increasingly uh, more invasive technology being employed to search people. And then you had all of the illegal wiretapping that was uh, instituted and so on and so forth. But what bothers me the most is that we've become inured to it. And so that we do live in a, a national security state in which most Americans just take it for granted that this is this is how it is and that all of their privacy uh, and their in their lives are an open book uh, for the for the for the common good, for the good of, of the citizenry. And I'm, I'm afraid that um, the government got one over on us that, you know, they're. Uh, they were able to abridge the Constitution and get away with it. And it's 20 years later. And um, the Patriot Act is pretty much still in force. And there seems to be no real energy to revisit um, those laws and those law enforcement powers. Um, and this is just it's, it's just been fully normalized. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. And, and unlike a lot of other uh, wartime measures that happened in, in major conflicts say in the 20th century uh there is no there's no time limit built in to the through the permanent emergency that we now have uh because of the, the nature of the war on terror is essentially limitless uh, and, and and it's always expanding to include new enemies in new countries uh there, there will never i mean unless we finally scrap the 2001 authorization and and put a, a stop to the war on terror uh 
we're going to continue living under these, these permanent emergency conditions where these kinds of violations of the Constitution are treated as, uh, quote unquote, necessary uh, compromises. Uh, and so the, that's, in a way, that's what makes it even more disturbing uh, than, than usual wartime uh, abridgments of uh, constitutional liberties, because at least in those earlier conflicts, there was at least conceivably a point at which those abridgments would stop. And I mean, we've already we already saw with the Cold War how, how the security state can grow and sort of make itself a permanent fixture. And uh, post 9-11, uh, it's only gotten worse. And and the thing that I find disturbing as we're coming up on this 20th anniversary is that the, the war on terror itself keeps rolling on. It keeps finding new targets. It keeps finding new justifications to keep going. Uh, and so that even after we get out of Afghanistan, which is, you know, we would think that would be the time when the war on terror can end. Uh, it, it keeps going on uh, in, in various places, you know, as far afield as Congo. Now, we have, we have special forces troops going to fight a supposed ISIS branch in Congo. And so, when, you know, when can it end? Uh, it, it's not going to end unless, uh, unless we put a, a halt to it uh, by, by getting rid of that authorization. Yeah, and I think about all of the money uh, that, that I mean, the billions, and we know now trillions of dollars that went into the wars after 9-11, a lot of that went into uh, domestic economies uh, with the Department of Homeland Security and all of the, you know, the funding for uh, new counterterrorism measures in, in, in particularly in states around the U.S. Capitol. So that would include, you know, not only the District of Columbia, but Virginia, where I live, and in Maryland, we're talking billions of dollars had gone to prop up this new security state. And that would include um, massive investments in surveillance and monitoring. So you had you had entire communities that were built up physically out in suburban Virginia in which tens of thousands of people came to work to act as uh, security and surveillance analysts like, you know, your Edward Snowdens. And those people aren't going anywhere. Those jobs aren't going anywhere. I remember the uh, Dana Priest uh, had done, I believe William Arkin had done that series, uh, the National Security Inc. or National Security State. I can't remember what the series was for the Washington Post, but basically it found that there were 30,000, I think, new uh, security clearances issued to people, contractors, in the wake of 9-11. And so it wasn't just suburban Virginia, but suburban Maryland, all over, you had all of these consulting firms uh, or all of these security firms, private contractors had sprung up to sort of service this new uh, reality. And so when you have an entire ecosystem that's been built up in the wake of such a massive event and a massive mission, um, it's it's nearly impossible, as we know, to dismantle it. So they have to continuously have a mission in order to sustain the budgets, to sustain their 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 reason for being. And I, you know, I curse the uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the very creation of it, because what I saw in real time on my, in my in my own eyes uh, was the creation of a huge new layer of bureaucracy. 
that supposedly or ostensibly was supposed to bring together 22 agencies, existing agencies, ranging from the you know, Secret Service all the way to Customs and Border Protection, with the, the goal of, of them being under an umbrella or more sharing uh, would be, uh, and it, you know, the cooperation would be more enhanced among these agencies. But what it did was create an entire new administration above it. And uh, just yet another cabinet level uh, agency that was competing with other agencies for more money and for, you know, for more mission. And, and what did it do? I mean, uh, I mean, I, I would I would dare anybody to come back and say we are any safer or we have more of a handle on information and intelligence gathering because we created this new bureaucracy. But it just gave more people people jobs that now we can't. We can't get rid of. Right. And well, it's, it's been a huge concentration of power and wealth uh, in D.C. In, in these agencies. Uh, and and we know I mean, we've seen how that can be turned against people here at home. We, we see the effects of the. Uh, the distribution of military equipment to local police departments and how that has turned local police forces increasingly uh, militarized uh, units uh, that treat their own communities as though it's hostile territory rather than, than their own communities. And uh, so it, it's, it's had a, a pervasive and, and uh, corrosive effect on national life. And of course, we, I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the, the incredibly destructive effects that it's had on many other countries around the world. Uh, not only the ones that we uh, waged the larger scale wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but in many of the, the other countries that were also uh, swept up in the, the war on terror in one way or another. Uh, the Cost of War Project at Brown University has just released a new study uh, giving a conservative estimate of how many people have died uh, as a result of the war on terror uh, in just five countries. And they came up with a tally of between 897,000 and 929,000. And so the, the real number is probably higher than that. Uh, and, and that doesn't take into account all of the, the theaters. It's just these five, I think, Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and Yemen. And so there, uh, there's a lot of devastation, a lot of uh, displacement. Of course, tens of millions of people have been displaced over the last 20 years. Uh, and just from U.S. airstrikes, Air Wars released a report this week saying that uh, U.S. airstrikes as part of the war on terror killed uh, at least 22,000 civilians, and it may be as many as 48,000. And so that's a, that's a really uh, hefty butcher's bill. Uh, and, and it's very hard, looking back on all of it, to say that it was really worth doing any of it, or, or worth doing most of it anyway. Um, it's it's all come at an incredibly high cost, and it's it's really questionable whether much of any of it was ever necessary. Um, you see a lot of people coming out uh, on the hawkish side saying, oh, you know, the war on terror was a success because there was no repeat of 9-11. There were no other large-scale terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Uh, but the, you know, the, the counter to that is that there haven't been more attacks on that scale because the terrorist threat has always been exaggerated and it was never as great as it was made out to be. And so we've been tearing the world apart. We've been transforming our country into something almost unrecognizable uh, 
to fend off a threat that was never that great to begin with. And so I, I think that's the, the real horror of the war on terror, that we've, we've done all of these, uh, we've made all of these major changes and we've unleashed so much destruction in the world, uh, really for, for such a small reason. Right. And the real terror is that we don't recognize that on the most part. I mean, you and I do. And there are plenty of people out there who have been calling the alarms against uh, the global war on terror from the beginning. Uh, But already that I'm already seeing like these op eds and uh, news reports about um, Biden administration officials talking about the continued threat of terrorism, even in the wake of the the end of our military operations in Afghanistan and how we are going to need this over horizon capability to go after terrorists. There was a an op-ed by Ali Sufan in, I believe, the Washington Post either today or over the weekend, basically saying, oh, we have terror threat here. We have a terror threat there. You know, we have ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other groups, and we have to be vigilant. We have to re-engage in the Middle East, not disengage in order to meet this threat. And I think um, there is definitely uh, a competition now for the narrative and, you know, just all of those um you know, different factions of, or these powerful interests that I mentioned earlier, you know, seeking uh, to find ways to, 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 to remain uh, essential uh, are going to be, like you said, uh, overinflating the threat. And I think we have to be vigilant ourselves and making sure that this, um, this forever war uh, doesn't morph into something different in which it's uh, we have special forces or CIA or other other um, apparatus of the, the government sort of um, continuing this war in other ways, quieter ways overseas that um, are, are, are going to keep us entangled and continue to create new threats because of our kinetic actions. And that's uh, that's something to watch out for. Uh, definitely, and I mean, and thinking about uh, the the effects of the war on terror, uh, when, when it began, uh, international jihadist groups and, and, and jihadist groups in general were not that numerous. There were not that many operating. Uh, their, their numbers were not that great. Uh, over the last twenty years, we've seen a, a huge explosion in those numbers, uh, as uh, as both local armed groups align themselves with these. Uh, international jihadist groups uh, for the purposes of prestige and, and assistance, uh, but also as many people in these countries are radicalized and driven into the the arms of these jihadist groups uh, in response to uh, our airstrikes, in response to our special forces raids, and so on. And so we you know, we have been doing uh, a lot of the recruiting work effectively with our policies uh, in in. in driving the creation of these new groups. And, and, and many of these new groups are even more uh, brutal and sinister than the ones that preceded them. And so, of course, I mean, we, can, we can think of how ISIS came into existence, where uh, there was no al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, prior to the invasion. Uh, the invasion creates the security vacuum into which uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq moves or, or in which it operates. And then uh, a fr- uh, a splinter of that group then becomes even more radical and becomes what we now know as, as the Islamic State. And so were it, were it not for that invasion, uh, that entire chain of events probably would not have 
occurred at all. And there would, there would be no ISIS and all of its victims uh, would not have uh, suffered. So it's, that, that, I think that's one of the clearest examples of where our post 9-11 policies have really exacerbated and worsened the threat from terrorism. Uh, and, and even though we haven't suffered attacks here, uh, it has led to the, the, the tens of thousands of deaths of people at the hands of these groups. Uh, that wouldn't have happened if we had responded more wisely and prudently uh, after the attacks. Our guests today are Christopher Coyne and Abigail Hall. Professor Coyne is Professor of Economics at George Mason University and the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. And Professor Hall is Associate Professor of Economics at Bellarmine University. They are the co-authors of Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism, and most recently, Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, Manufacturing Militarism. Um, in, in that book, you're focused mainly on post-9-11 uses of propaganda to promote the war on terror in the Iraq war and militarized foreign policy more generally, but you also delve a bit into some of the earlier history of U.S. government propaganda efforts. Uh, so tell us, when does the U.S. government first get heavily involved in the use of propaganda to sell the public on its wars? Uh, well, the, the role of propaganda in, in war um, is, is, of course, nothing new. Uh, and uh, both across uh, time and geographic space, so across governments, propaganda has often been tightly linked with, with war making. And uh, America is no different. Uh, and so, you know, one of the early kind of pieces of history that people point to is uh, Paul Revere's 19, uh, excuse me, 1770 engraving uh, of uh, the bloody massacre perpetrated in King Street, um, which depicted events of the Boston massacre in order to galvanized support against the British. Um, but really, pre-World Wars, uh, propaganda was kind of decentralized. Um, again, it took place, but there was no centralized effort. And that changed uh, with World War I. Uh, under uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, you get the Committee on Public Information, uh, also known as the uh, Creel Committee. Uh, and the very purpose of the committee was to systematically influence public opinion uh, to support the US government's war effort. So you had things, of course, like conscription, economic rationing, the need to purchase war bonds or the government's desire to purchase war bonds, victory gardens, so people growing their own food um, because of the, the various controls and so on. And all of these efforts were trying to coordinate Americans to sacrifice and accept these costs for the greater good. Uh, in World War II, uh, you get uh, under uh, uh, Roosevelt, the Office of War Information, uh, which, again, the purpose of it was to uh, uh, provide and disseminate propaganda to support the war. Uh, and also during that time period, you get the Writers' War Board, uh, which was a, a kind of a, a liaison between the U.S. government and uh, American journalists and writers. Uh, and uh, uh, you also had uh, uh, the U.S. government contracting with filmmakers uh, to produce both uh, uh, visual media and written media to support the war. Hey, did you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, so I think Chris covered it really well, just that we have seen that propaganda is really as old as the U.S. government itself. Just the thing that's really changed over time is this increase in, in centralization. Now, after World War II, you have the introduction of the Smith-Munt Act, which is supposed to, in some meaningful way, limit the dissemination of domestic propaganda. So, for instance, like you wouldn't hypothetically see a, uh, a Rosie the Riveter poster with respect to the war in Iraq uh, like you would in, in World War II. The thing that we look to point out, though, is that even though the different tools may have changed over time, this propaganda that is often typically associated either with a different historical period in the United States or, frankly, with autocratic regimes, which is how a lot of people tend to think about propaganda today, um, is very much also associated with more democratic societies. Sure. And uh, one of the things I found really interesting in the book is how you look at how uh, the, the way that political leaders and political actors uh, use propaganda and, and use threat inflation uh, to, to try to uh, push policies that aren't necessarily in the public interest, but that serve the interests of uh, of themselves or of, of interests that they're tied to. And, and so threat inflation is one of the most important uses of propaganda that we have, uh, that we see in U.S. foreign policy debate. Uh, you argue that there are significant political incentives uh, to overstate threats uh, in the interests of these political actors uh, and that the secretive nature of much of national security makes these incentives even stronger. Um, what are some of the remedies, uh, if there are any, uh, for weakening those incentives and uh, making threat inflation less appealing to them? Uh, Abby, you can start. So that's uh, there's a, there's a lot there. There's a really right. big big thing to tackle. So we we talk about some potential remedies for propaganda in the last chapter of the book, um, and so that's getting kind of at the overarching, like how do you potentially counteract propaganda and its effects, so we can link threat inflation specifically into that overarching thing. Um, and so we talk about things like passing laws potentially for government to hypothetically constrain itself. Um, we point out that there are some difficulties with that, like anytime you ask government or anybody in a position of authority to check its own power. We talk about the importance of whistleblowers and some of the important legislation surrounding that, but also some of the difficulties or reasons that we might not anticipate whistleblowers to be a particularly effective check, though we do argue it is an important one. We talk about the media as being particularly important, which is something we could dive into in a bit more detail if you like, but also, again, highlighting some of the potential problems with using media as a check on propaganda. But the last piece that we come back to, and this is something that's been thematic in our other work as well, is talking about the importance of citizen ideology. So we talk about it in form of kind of an inoculation against propaganda. Um, and one of the things that is really necessary in discussing that particular component is that people have to be willing and able to question the information that is being presented to them and to critically assess it. Now, one of the things that we point out in the theoretical part of the book, but then also highlight in the case studies as well, is that one of the things that's particularly pernicious about propaganda, about that threat inflation that you point out, is that within the context of defense and national security specifically, even people who want to get the information or they want to question the information that they're given 
may not effectively be able to do that. They may not be given the information at all, or the information that they receive is purposefully biased, it's misleading, or it's altogether false. Any thoughts on that, Chris? The only thing I would add is I think it's important to also think about the root cause of this, which you, you touched upon in your comments, which is that the national security state broadly understood is mired in secrecy and purposefully so. Uh, and uh, uh, to most people, you know, that's not an issue and something that's actually desirable. Um, you know, th there, there should be national, there's national security secrets and that information needs to be kept concealed precisely because we don't want our enemies to get it. And of course, this was the justification for the current classification system, which went into existence in 1940. Um, so the, the concern was that, um, you know, during World War, the, the World Wars, uh, and then during the Cold War, that, the, that our enemies, America's enemies, were to get access to uh, sensitive information and use that to harm America. Of course, the basic incentives facing those in government is that when you can classify, you'll overclassify. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, in, in the book, we cite numerous government committees uh, and studies that point this out, that there's a tendency to overclassify. The problem, of course, is that for those who are a proponent of democracy, that is of checks and balances in the form of whether it's congressional oversight, whether it is oversight by the citizenry uh, or voters or, or so on, those that control that information, which is a very, relatively small number of, of people in the national security state relative to the general populace, can conceal and manipulate that information to engage in narrow opportunism. So that's the, the root problem of it. Uh, and so anything that can be done to uh, you know, unravel that uh, information asymmetry is desirable. Um, and, and Abby uh, pointed out a couple of potential solutions to doing that, but uh, that's, that's the root cause that I think is important to address. Chris and Abby, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it and, and appreciate all the work that you've done together uh, in, in the spirit of unraveling a lot of this um, uh, government secrecy, but also a lot of the, the reasons and the results of the post 9-11, you know, tyranny coming home. And I know that we're, you know, we'll be, you know, seeing a, or at least uh, reflecting on a 20 year anniversary of 9-11 on Saturday. And I was wondering if you could um, put into context uh, the work you've done and research on propaganda in to the run up to the Iraq war after 9-11, because, you know, and Dan and I have been in this business for a long time in the last 20 years. And and sort of uh, studying and, and poking at and criticizing the media and, and their complicity in, in the run-up to the war. Can you talk a little bit about the media's role in um, sort of uh, forwarding or, or um, advancing the propagandistic aims of the, of the government, the Bush administration, uh, to get people on board for that war? Yeah, so in talking about the war in Iraq, we actually dedicate two different chapters to that. So there is a chapter discussing um, what we call kind of the, the pre-invasion sales pitch. And then after the invasion in 2003, we have kind of the, the post-invasion sales pitch. And there's there's a reason that we divide it that way. In thinking about the, the lead up to it, and one of the things that was really interesting but can also be very tedious and frustrating about doing these kinds of case studies is that it necessitates understanding 
a really massive historical context in terms of decades of U.S. intervention and relations with Iraq, with Saddam Hussein's government in particular. And so there's there's a lot of things going on in, in the background and the foreground and some of the players who are relevant in previous decades come up again in very prominent positions in the Bush administration. And so we talk about all of those things. When we look at the role that the media plays, particularly the intersection of government and the media, there are a few different things. So within the context of Iraq, we talk about the different justifications the administration put forward for the invasion. So primarily things like uh, Saddam Hussein having direct ties to al-Qaeda or other terrorist organizations, and then also, of course, things like weapons of mass destruction, People who were around at that time may remember discussions around uh, the quote-unquote aluminum tubes, which could have been used supposedly in said weapons of mass destruction. And so we look at and we unravel how it is that media portrayed those particular items. Um, And so we have information related to um, how people perceived those uh, particular Items, so things like opinion polling of is Saddam Hussein like directly connected to terrorist organizations, things like that. Um, And we're able to glean from that information a pretty widespread public support in many demographics for the war in Iraq. But with respect to the media specifically, one of the things that was really interesting was how those talking points got out there. So you would see, for instance, things like the Bush administration offering information to major newspapers or other media outlets about a particular issue, a particular person, or and so on. And then you would have people like Vice President Cheney who would go on Meet the Press and then cite the media outlet as the original source of the information when it had actually come from the administration themselves. So we have this in kind of the, the lead up. And then when you look at things after, when of course we realize, oh wait, these weapons of mass destruction that were supposed to be here, we're having a really hard time finding these. And so then things start to switch. Um, we talk about, again, this uh, tendency to provide quote unquote unbiased experts. So again, the Bush administration would send people who are supposed to be these objective experts um, and have them present themselves in that way, but had actually been provided talking points uh, by the administration. We also talk about things like embedding journalists and some of the other problems with war coverage. Um, and so those are kind of the, the highlights of the things that we discuss with respect to the media as it pertains to the war in Iraq. Um, but definitely there are people who've written extensively about some of the problems, in particular journalists, um, who've also talked about from their perspective what those problems look like. You know, Chris, it seems like (laughs) you want to give the administration some credit dubiously for being so clever in manipulating the media. I remember one of the major uh, complaints at the time was that uh, the the media, in an effort or in desperation to keep access with the White House, would end up being, you know, these... um, you know, tools of the war effort, or at least the, the the pro-invasion effort. How much of this was the media sort of falling into a trap 
in which in order to have access, they had to play the game by the Bush administration's rules. And how long did that carry on for? Because, you know, once there were, we realized there was no WNDs, by that time, uh, the raison d'etre of the war was, you know, oh, we're liberating Iraq and this is all about reconstruction. And then again, with the embeds and and, and the media, um, having to play this game ended up, you know, continuing uh, this uh, charade on behalf of the government. Yeah, so I, I think it's I think the the causation runs in both directions here, meaning the relationship between the media and government. And you highlight, I think, some of the fundamental tensions with the role of media as a check on government. And I, I we do believe, by the way, that a free media is an important check on government, and, and nothing we say undermines that. But what what we do point out is that there are certain things where government can neuter that ability to be a check on government. And also for a free media to be a check on government, the the members of the media have to have a a certain kind of set of principles and beliefs that they they follow. And so so if you just think about some of the incentives which you touched upon, one is access, uh, uh, which is that, you know, at, at some point, you know, those who control information, those that control access for interviews and so on can cut certain people off. In the media, and so members of the media have to be cognizant of not agitating people, the the, the proper people, in, in a way that will prevent them from having access. Uh, of course, the the incentives in, in media also is is there's a careerism aspect to it, which is one of the ways that you make a career is to cover some kind of crisis event and become associated with that, and that that links up with access. But there's other things too. You know, we have some quotes in the book where, where journalists basically point out, like, look, we're, we're Americans. And when the country's at war, of course, we have a bias towards our country, like uh, uh, many people do. And so we're going to tend to report things in a favorable light or at least pay more attention to those things. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, with the embedded journalists, you know, one of the issues, of course, is both the Pentagon, when they embed journalists with members of the military, can put them in certain places. Uh, but also when you are embedded with members of the military, again, you become, uh, uh, you're part of the team. You become close to those people. Uh, you rely on those people for protection, of course, and for security. And so the the incentive is to, uh, at least a tendency, to focus on the positive aspects and, and not the, 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 the negative aspects. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, the, the issue is, is that, you know, in, in the case of Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, uh, the members of, of the mainstream media, for the most part, not every single person, but for the most part, became cheerleaders, almost extensions of the government. Part of that was government embedding, as Abby was saying, these kind of supposed experts. But again, media is complicit in that. Uh, uh, it's not just that they they force the government didn't force those people uh, into into the media, those those supposed experts. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, you know, at the same time, you got to remember that for long periods of time in this decades-long war on terror, the media was silent. Uh, and so you get the run-up to the war, you get attention. Uh, you get certain things like the surge uh, in Afghanistan and so on, there's some attention. Then there's a long period of time where there's basically very little to no scrutiny at all of Afghanistan until uh, the recent exit. And then, of course, now lots of people seem concerned. They seem worried about human rights and so on. Uh, uh, but, you know, you look at things like drone coverage under the Obama administration, uh, and it's very thin. Uh, and so what's the solution to this? Uh, well, again, you know, my, I, I, 
Abby, where Abby and I come down, it's not to, you know, have some kind of regulation or control over the media because, or state regulations, what I mean, because that's fundamentally the issue is the, the state controlling the flow of information. And so I think the best we can do is some form of contestability, having contestability in the media, in journalism. And we have more of that today. We have lots of opportunities for investigative journalists and for people to have their, their voice heard. Uh, but again, all of this ultimately collapses down into the citizenry, uh, because even if you have a media that's, that is, is scrutinizing government actions, if, if the citizenry is unwilling uh, uh, to, to listen and to consider that information, then it's all for naught. Uh, we're coming back to the, the coverage of Afghanistan in the last few weeks. Uh, I think we've, we've all seen how a lot of the problems that were on display before the Iraq war have come back uh, in full force, especially with bringing on all of these supposed uh, military affairs experts who have a vested interest in pushing the pro-war line. Um, would you characterize the overall Afghanistan coverage in the last few weeks as an example of a propaganda campaign on behalf of pro-war interests? Um, Abby. So in terms of how it is that, that we define propaganda, so we talk about it in terms of being purposefully misleading, biased, or false, something that pushes a political agenda, and then also something that is bad from the perspective of the recipient and that it limits their ability to engage in rational decision-making. Um, and so in terms of being able to readily identify what is coming out currently as being propaganda or not under that definition, it really necessitates us understanding like whether or not that, that piece of is the information purposefully biased, misleading, or false. Um, and so I don't know that we necessarily have that information yet in terms of what's coming out that's accurate versus inaccurate. Um, I do think, though, that one of the things that we can definitely say is that the information that is coming out. And I mean, you see people, I'm reading interviews, for instance, from generals who were involved in Afghanistan at one point or another, who are all obviously going to be putting forth a narrative that is conducive with how it is that they view the way that things could or should have been done. Um, no one who is involved, for instance, in the war is probably going to come out and want to say something that's going to run counter to the narrative that, that makes them look good. Um, and so I, I have every expectation that we'll be able to critically assess the information that is coming out at this point. Um, but in terms of whether it would fall under propaganda under the definition that we employ, um, I'm not sure that I have the information yet to be able to make uh, a firm statement on that one way or the other. Chris may, may agree or disagree. Yeah, I certainly think it's hard to make that judgment at this point. But I, but I think that the point you raise is still an, an important one, which is that I think much of the discussion that we're seeing around Afghanistan captures very nicely kind of the overarching culture and mindset of the, the broader foreign policy establishment. I use that very broadly to include state actors, but also various actors in the, in the Washington, D.C. area and think tanks and so on, which is that, you know, even in the face of, of failure, blatant failure, in the face of deception, Having a, a voice that asks, well, maybe the U.S. government isn't good at this, and maybe they shouldn't 
be doing this as part of their portfolio of activities under the name of, of providing security to the person and property of American citizens is considered kind of off limits. It's considered radical. It's considered isolationist. And so penetrating that culture is a very difficult one. There's the, the view kind of uh, that, that dominates this mindset, the, the, what, what Abby and I elsewhere have called the interventionist mindset, is that there's them and us. The us is the small group of enlightened folks that, that run the national security apparatus. Those folks need to intervene around the world to kind of create some kind of order. Absent that order, the world is chaotic. The, the world is one where there's danger around every corner uh, to American citizens or American people more broadly. Uh, uh, and, you know, countering that is really difficult. I think that's what we're seeing. And that is a challenge, I think, both in general for, for having a broader conversation about these issues, but more fundamentally, I would argue, if a challenge for a free society, which is that how can you have a free society, one where a, a citizen-based society, where the, 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 the direction of power is not from government down, government doesn't impose things upon us, rather citizens drive the process, and to the extent government exists and is involved in, in, in affairs, that comes from the citizenry. So that's the, that's the challenge because the current apparatus is one and the mindset is one where it's kind of this top-down approach. And so that's the challenge it poses to a free society. How do we crack that? And so uh, that's kind of one of the broader themes that, that I think comes out of this. Very good. And uh, you've given us a lot to think about and uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for coming on. Our guests are Christopher Coyne and Abigail Hall. Uh, their book is Manufacturing Militarism. And uh, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. Mm -hmm.